This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's show, we learn about Anna Jakobsen's designs for a college in Oxford, England, and pay a visit to a Florentine milliner. We'll also look to the future with the car brand Genesis, plus another instalment of our summer series. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Sixty years ago, St Catherine's College opened at Oxford University. The architect behind the scheme that paired tradition with a modern sensibility was none other than Danish master Arne Jakobsen. To mark the milestone, the college will celebrate his work on site with a conference this weekend. This show's producer, Maylie Evans, caught up with the architect Peter Denny, who worked on designs for the college in the early 1960s, as well as Stephen Hodder, whose practice, Hodder and Partners, extended the college in the early 2000s. We hear from Stephen first, who explains how aspects of the traditional Oxford College are combined with a more modern aesthetic. Jakobsen called for plans of many Oxford colleges uh, to understand their arrangement and that he was very clear that he, he wanted to respect that tradition of the collegiate design but actually make a contemporary interpretation of that and that that was very much the generator for the the main courtyard in that space. But also what is common between both Oxford and Cambridge colleges, I guess, is that rooms are arranged around staircases. And that became a model that uh, Jakobsen adopted in the residential buildings as well, that the rooms are arranged around staircases rather than along corridors. So there were those two components that he made a contemporary interpretation of the courtyard and the organisation of the rooms around staircases. I think that's a brilliant summary. He was very taken by New College, I know. The college plans he took away with him to study, New College was the one that impressed him most. And I think that's apparent in the, uh, the arrangement of the quadrangle and the buildings flanking it. St Catherine's is interesting because... It's one of the first of his buildings where the structure becomes such an important element of the design. In in his earlier buildings, it wasn't such, it didn't play such a significant role. And I think from then on, you can see in, for example, in the National Bank in Denmark, that tendency coming through more strongly. But it started with with St Catherine's and I think what is wonderful about the building is the um, great simplicity of the construction and yet um, especially to the central buildings, the hall and the library and the Sunday auditorium is how although all the components are identical, all three buildings their own very distinct character so that you get colossal diversity within this profound simplicity. And the other thing was that his sense of materiality was very strong. You spoke about materiality there. Are there any details um, in the building that you're fond of, whether they be moments, views, choices that capture your imagination? Because Jacobson didn't just work on the outer shell, but was heavily involved in the furniture choices and and the arrangement of the spaces too. Peter, let's start with you. For me, the seating arrangement of the auditorium, I think, is incredibly special and uh, very dear to me because the young fellows on the building committee were quite convinced that what they wanted was a conventional auditorium with benches and desks 
And I'm hoping that I can, for the conference, I can find the drawing that we did, which showed three alternative options for it. The first of which was a straight line series of benches and, and tables. The second was a canted design shape. And the third was what we ended up with, which was the number seven chair on the stand with a little armrest shaped to sympathize with the chair. That was uh, something we'd uh, worked on in the studio with Arnie Appleton. I can remember taking a model of, of one of those chairs and having it put on a stand outside the concrete structure of the building as it was to convince the building committee that's what we should do. Happily, we did convince them. And I think as a result, the auditorium has a very special quality that isn't repeated in any other university building uh, of the time. And how about yourself, Stephen? It's very difficult for me to identify a single aspect. He used this wonderful device of two metre high brick walls, which is a, a wonderful unifying device throughout the whole college, whether it be garden walls or base wall to the library. It's a unifying element throughout the whole college, but also one which gives a real human scale to the college. And Stephen, you were architect on the two-phase extension or additions made to the college in the early 2000s. What kind of conversation did you want to share with the existing structure? We've discussed some of the details, but maybe what were the qualities that you wanted to carry through in your own work? On the one hand, we wanted them to have their own identity, but nevertheless, we wanted them to be very much of the place. So the materiality of them is, is very responsive to, to the Ackerson buildings, but also the Ackerson buildings are, are, are laid out on a very, very rigorous three metre grid. And even, even in the, the paviers on the plinth or even indeed the, the Westmoreland slate in the dining hall, that grid pervades absolutely everything throughout the college. The two-phase extension to the north of the, the Ackerson buildings equally respond to that grid. And so they're on, so the bedrooms are actually on a three metre grid. The staircases are aligned with one another in the same way as the Jacobson buildings are. And there are, in the same way that walls and fragments extend into the Jacobson gardens, we, we try to emulate that. As I said, whilst the buildings seek to have their own identity in many ways, both in material, the grid, and in the landscape, they're very much responsive to you know, what is a very, very powerful neighbour. May I say that I think Stephen's work is a wonderful addition, and I think one couldn't ask for a, a more sensitive extension to the original Jacobson building, and I think it's a great accomplishment. I admire it immensely. Having worked on the original team, where we, because of the brick shortage at the time, the only two-inch brick, it's a narrow brick, the only brick we could get that was even available for the money was a flint lime brick, which is really a concrete brick. So it's rather horrible and there's nothing whatsoever to do with, with Jakobsen's original hope that he could use the wonderful yellow Danish bricks, uh, two-inch bricks. Stephen, um, of course, was able later on to he had more choice and he was able to get a very handsome brick, I think, which um, I'm truly envious of because 
it wears so much better than the flintline bricks. It's still a flintline brick, Peter, whether or not the technology of the manufacturer moved on, but it's still a flintline brick. And the bonding that uh, Jakobsen adopted, the quarter bond, which almost seems to reinforce the horizontal composition of the college. Well, indeed it does. I think the other thing that we learned, I mean, when working alongside the Jakobsen buildings, of course, it was almost like having a, a physical library and next to you. So, you know, one could learn so much from the way in which Jakobsen had crafted the buildings. But I guess the other thing that we learned from studying those buildings was how the spaces in between the buildings were as important as the buildings themselves. And, you know, what I call the negative space, that when you're actually within the college, you get these glimpses of the spaces in between and the, the meadows beyond. And that was something that in the extensions we were equally very keen to. So whilst we were responding to the, the architecture, I would like to think that the spaces in between the building, particularly to the north where you look into what's known as Music Meadow, that the, the spaces in between became as important to us as indeed had been for the original Jacobson buildings. We've got listeners who may not necessarily be architects, but interested in design, who maybe practice in a different field. From this particular project, what is a lesson that you hope designers will take away from it or an aspect that you think is really key to good design, for design that lasts and sort of helps better our lives? Stephen, we start with you. It was quite interesting that a, a, a few years ago, there was a, a, an exhibition of Jacobs's work in St. Catherine's at the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford. And I wrote an essay to accompany that exhibition. And one of the things I, I, I said in there was that, and I think the, the takeaway for me is not only the way in which Jacobson crafted his buildings, but his sense of proportion, his sense of colour, his sense of texture, the, the college has a wonderful humanist quality about it. And, and I think that that's something which is a, an important takeaway, that at the end of the day, architecture is for people and how we experience it as people is so, so important. And that was something that Jakobsen did in taking aspects of modernism and humanising them. And those are qualities that I think that are, are so important today. Well, the first thing that... The important thing is a client, you need a good client. In the case of Alan Bullock, he was a great client. And without that synergy between an understanding between him and Jacobson, the building wouldn't be as successful as it is. The other thing is a sense of scale. That is um, what was admired when the committee visited Denmark and saw Munkugor School, because the scale of the building related to the primary school pupils were so perfect that they could see that they had a man who understood the role of a building in relation to its occupants. The other is, of course, light. Light was a very important element. The way the light varies, especially in the three principal buildings, the nature of the light is very beautifully realised. Peter Denny there, and before that, Stephen Hodder. Anna Jakobsen and St Catherine's College, a conference, takes place this Saturday. The college welcomes visits and tours by architects and those interested in Anna Jakobsen's work. So do drop them a line. Heritage Italian hat maker Grevy has been keeping the well-dressed looking sharp for nearly 150 years. 
based on the outskirts of Florence, the company still relies on a team of seamstresses to assemble its collection of men's and women's hats, all by hand. These are designed in-house by its family owners each season. Monocle's Ivan Cavallio recently visited Gravi's workshop in Tuscany to learn more. The sounds one encounters when stepping into the Grevy Hat Workshop haven't changed much since the business began operations in 1875, here in Signa, just outside Florence. A handful of veteran seamstresses dutifully work in silence, using foot pedals on antique sewing machines to assist them as they construct the brims of classic summer hats for the family-owned business. Silvana Grevi together with her siblings, Roberta and Giuseppe, is part of the fourth generation who now oversees the family's fashion brand. When we trim a hat, it's, uh, we make like a, when a tailor makes a jacket, so the, the band is sewn by hand on the hat and it's cut one piece by hand and sewn by hand on the hat. So it fits the hat perfectly and that makes the difference that the hat is more beautiful. Silvana walks me through the different departments where staff sew, cut and iron materials together, typically made from natural origins, to create their hats. In her office I meet Roberta Grevi who oversees the creative side and helps devise new models for men and women each season. For the summer, Roberta believes in hats that are breathable and portable. What I'm looking for is fresh materials to let air in because summer is getting hotter each year, so it's really useful to let air get in because sometimes hats are really too hot in the summer. And it's true that it, it, with Grevy, you're known for using natural materials in yes. your hat construction. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, our materials are all natural, uh, such as hemp and straw and raffia. And that's very important for us to use materials of our tradition. So I, I see here, Roberta, this latest hat that you're designing uh, with these little perforations in it. Just explain to me what, what this is made of. Uh, this is a, a raffia net which is a very typical material in our mm, Tuscan tradition. And that's what my grandmother used to make hat of. And I've always seen it all my life, and I like it very much. It's a light material. Another advantage of our hats is that they are always soft and foldable, as the one that I hold in my hands, that you can fold and put in your pocket or in your bag and then you open and it, you can have the shape again. Grevy's classic styles for men and women have long been sought after and have even graced the big screen. From covering the head of Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman to period films set in Tuscany such as Franco Zeffirelli's tea with Mussolini, their short and wide-brimmed hats have made a fashion statement. Good 
Buongiorno Giuseppe, ciao, sono con Mr. Bayer. During the latest edition of Pitti Uomo in Florence, the premier menswear fashion fair, Grevy was hosting buyers in its new boutique in downtown Florence, where Roberto and Silvana's brother, Giuseppe, greets men's retailers keen to order their lightweight summer models, such as their pinstriped bucket hat or a tribli in abaca with a leather strap band. Ecco, io suggerirei questo qua. As with previous generations, the Grevy siblings are proud of their made-in-Italy provenance as they continue to carefully update their classic looks for today's customers without betraying their roots. From Monocle, in Florence, I'm Ivan Carvalho. We continue with the next instalment of our summer series, and this time we're slipping into a pair of smart white trousers. To explain why, and how you should wear them, here's Monocle's Jack Simpson. A taste of the Riviera, channeling the talented Mr Ripley, stealing the bride's thunder at a summer wedding, white trousers are a telltale sign of this sartorial season. They come with a host of rules and perils, but also joys. They might be cheaper than buying a yacht, but they take about the same amount of work to keep clean. If you can trust yourself and those around you at the dinner table, a tailored pair that's worn in the right location can bring breeziness to any outfit. Still, it's crucial to choose the right fit and the cut. Think more Richard Gere on the Italian coast than content creator in Mykonos. Options from the likes of Scott Fraser Collection and Beams Plus should do the trick. White trousers load spontaneity. Drinks on the lawn, I think not. Dinner at a charming, though slightly grubby, hole in the wall. Best of luck. The good news is that white trouser season brings ample opportunities for sunny refreshments and dining. Stick to white wine and grilled fish and you should be fine. They are the jolly cousin of jeans. The blondes have more fun of the trouser realm. If you can overlook the risk, they'll be a staple of the weeks to come. My thanks to Jack Simpson there. We'll be right back straight after this. Get inspired with Monocle's September issue as you head back to work and put those dreams cooked up in the summer sun into action. Our business pages whisk you from an entrepreneurial academy for would-be founders in Mexico to the medical startup scene of France. We also look at the expansion of Stockholm's Ethem Hotel, tour three smart media HQs built with ambition, and meet the architects returning to Tunis to put their stamp on a city and protect its modernist buildings. Elsewhere, we meet the Indonesian president, and we travel throughout Ukraine, five months on from Russia's invasion. We report on the stories of its people as they pass through their daily routines, as well as fighting a war at the same time. We're fighting for every citizens, and it's big tragedy for our hometown, for our country. I'm a former boxer, and one saying, no fight, no win. And that's why we're still fighting. Read their stories and much more besides in the September issue of Monocle magazine, available to order today, or you can subscribe online and get access to our digital editions at monocle.com. Initially founded as a division within the Hyundai Motor Company, South Korea's Genesis was established as an independent automotive brand in 2015. 
In that short time period, it has challenged the notion that electric cars can't be luxury vehicles, thanks to its smart and elegant rides like the GV60, its high-performance coupe. This is thanks in large to the direction of the brand's chief creative officer, Luke Donkerwalk, whose career, prior to Genesis, saw the Belgian designer work with the likes of Lamborghini, Audi and Bentley. To find out more about his work and the relationship between design and brand, Luke joined me down the line. He began by talking about his initial work upon joining Genesis in 2016. You have to imagine that um, when I started this journey uh, about six and a half years ago, uh, we had to create an identity. And, and actually, who needs another premium brand if it's just uh, artificially created? So what I wanted to do is create a brand with virtual elements which would be real values for the customer. And this is where the concepts started with brand is design, design is brand. So not just doing some cool styling, but actually taking the brand as a start to materialize the design of the cars, the DNA of the cars. And this, this already started with the face of the cars. The, the, the face with the lights, the grill was originated by the, the, the logo. Uh, so the crest in the logo became the grill and the feathers of the wings became, became the, the quad lights that you see, the two lines that we refer to now today. So having this as a, as a beginning, uh, saying brand is design, design is brand, we decided that actually it would be good if design would be originating everything that the customer perceives. So it's not just the aesthetical values, but everything that uh, uh, goes into the customer journey. Uh, for instance, the, the, the way we treat the customer, the, the user experience, the customer experience is really important for us, which brought us to the concept of sonim in Korean, which is uh, having the user as, as the guest. I like this idea of design and brand working side by side. Can, can you tell me a little bit more about how this informs your design for the customer? Do you start with the design and brand first or are you thinking more about the driver and, and the passengers? We actually start with the customer experience. And this, this is uh, also true to all the design presentations we do with our top management. We actually never start talking about styling. We talk about what will be the journey of the customer, the guest, when he uses our car. So everything. For instance, uh, for instance uh, we have on the Genesis GV60 uh, the crystal sphere. The crystal sphere um, is actually an element uh, which was born out of my will to uh, visualize the fact that the engine, the electric engine was on. On a combustion engine, you have a problem, you have an acoustic reference that the engine is on, you have the ref counter. You don't have this in an electric engine. And I was always concerned that my designers playing around with electric cars in the design studio would press the accelerator on the car with the engine on and would actually hurt other people. And this is why I said I absolutely want for the Genesis to have a visual reference that the engine is on. So as soon as the engine is on, you press the button, the sphere rotates and gives you access to the, to the commands of the car. So as soon as you see those commands, you know the engine is on, careful. And, and this, is, this is where, again, we didn't start with a cool idea how to make a crystal sphere, how to integrate a crystal sphere into the interior of the car. No, that was the way we treated aesthetically this concept of safety. 
Can we talk a little bit more about the work you're doing and, and these new developments? You mentioned the GB60 there, a coupe. Can you tell us a little bit about the GB70, your midsize SUV? Looking at, at um, um, the, the customer of the vehicle, we also are really focused on not designing a car and then applying the same design to all the different models of the range. Um, so we specifically target the customer of, the, of for instance, the GV70, uh, and we adapt the DNA of the brand. By the way, we, we call of design philosophy athletic elegance, which means we introduce two almost contradictory elements, two spices. One is the sportiness, one is the elegance. Um, and we tune them differently according to the model we're doing. So um, if, we, if we have a model which is on the, on the high end, like a GV80 uh, or G90, there will be more elegance than sportiness. If we're talking about a car like the GV70, we will certainly enhance the, the sportivity and the young and fresh character, knowing that the customer will be younger and sportier and more active and more dynamic. Um, so this is how we always tune and specifically tailor the design of our cars for um, the, each model. I want to pivot now to talk more about the feeling we have when we're inside or driving a vehicle. How do you hope people feel when they drive or ride in a Genesis? Well, it, it was for me the point of having a relevance on the market. And if you, for instance, do a nice car, by the way, this is something which I hate when somebody tell, tells you, you've designed a nice car or a beautiful car. This is just basically say, okay, back to the drawing board. Can I jump in there? What, what do you want people to say to you? I actually want a car that people look at it and they uh, frown the eyebrows and they think, uh-huh. And then they kind of start, start reflecting, uh, reacting to it, interfacing with it, and then suddenly they start liking it. And actually, the more, the more they, they get to know it, the more they see the refinement, the contrast. And this is where I like a lot to play with the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde syndrome. It's always this opposition of characters, spices, which are always making sure there's tension. Tension is really important. You know, black is nothing uh, uh, without white. And, uh, and basically, too much of one is never good. So uh, um, too much of a good thing is actually a bad thing. So we always play with this tension and we always try to, to kind of um, play with some elements that are highlighting the other ones by contradicting them. Obviously, this is meaning that we have to have a, a, a dosage and it's really difficult to, to get that right. So it takes a lot of work. It lot, takes a lot of reflection. For me, for me, it is what happened in the last six and a half years is a dream. I've worked with a lot of car companies. I've, I've designed Italian sports cars and British luxury vehicles. And I can say that uh, I've had, I was really privileged to be able to contribute to a lot of companies. But then to be asked to, to, to create a brand and to design a specific is something that never happens normally in your design uh, career. And uh, also on top of that, in a phase where we designed this brand and we knew that in 2025, the company will be fully electric. Um, so, so that is actually um, giving another step into your thing. So you can only uh, uh, see to what is visible. It's the tip of the iceberg of what we're doing. And, and we are really passionate and we really uh, 
every day aware that we are dreaming with open eyes. And I think that that is what we hope the audience will perceive. And I guess just finally, Luke, you've been at Genesis for a number of years. I guess with this in mind, I'm curious if you know what the next few years look like. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of reflection. It takes a lot of journeys where you go home and say, did we push it too much? Maybe not. Then you go next day and say, well, no, actually it's okay. Let's, let's go further. And then we come to the point as well where we introduce the concept of purity. So we are then, when we have reached this point, we say, what can we take away from that design? What do we actually don't need? And then we try to go to the point where we've taken one element too much out and then we have to add it again. So it's a really strong game of, you know, trail and error. Every day it's a battle and every day it's kind of like a fight against yourself to make sure you don't push it too hard or you don't exaggerate. At the same time, you want this uh, conflict in you because if you have it, it's going to be interesting for the customer. As you know, uh, we are working, um, we have a high speed digital process, but we're still designing cars two years ahead of the start of production, which means in two years, things change on the market and uh, the people react to the, to the events. And for instance, now, after two terrible years of pandemic uh, uh, situations, people change much more than actually normal linear process in their lives. So we need to kind of be aware that something that is too predictable, too much acceptable today it's going to be boring and old when it goes on the market. That was Luke Donkerwalk, automotive designer and chief creative officer at Genesis. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Or, if you prefer print, then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by May Lee Evans, she edited the show with assistance from Adam Heaton, Callum McLean and Chris Blackwa. I'm Nick Manise and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>